Okay, right. Let's just be drawing our chat to a close. So I was asking you just to sort of say a little bit about um, why have you come to this seminar? What, what's in it for you? And I, I'm just wondering, perhaps we can just start in this area of the room here. Perhaps two or three people could put their hands up and just say sort of why have, why have you come? What do you want to know? Right, so how medication works and what the effects of it are. Sounds good. I'll try and do that. Yep. Sorry, just at the back. Yep. Right, okay, so talking about different types of counselling and what's a counsellor and what's a psychotherapist. That's good. Okay, I'll answer that probably right at the beginning because I haven't got slides for that particularly, but um, I'll answer that. Remind me at the beginning. We're going to do yours first, okay? Yep. Antidepressants and eating disorders. Okay, fine. Uh, some of these are quite sort of specific questions, so we might have to sort of come back to some of them at the end. But, um, you know, when do you use medication in an illness? When do you use counselling or alternative approaches, perhaps? We'll, we'll, we'll cover that. Yeah. Fine. So spiritual with medical. Should Christians take medication? Fine. Okay, good. Good. So we'll probably I'll start off with a little bit of history, and then we'll do Christians and medication. Just, just this group over here. Anything else? Yep, just the, by the pillar. Okay. Yeah, so where other professionals sort of fit in? And I'll, I'll talk a little bit about what a psychiatrist is. Um, so I would do that at some point as to what a psychiatrist is. And I, I sort of hinted at it in my talk this morning, but... Probably you guys have got a lot more time, for example, th th than I have. And I think that, that that's a, a start, at least. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Great. Okay. So advocacy. This is ad advocacy. Independent mental health advocacy is something in the UK to um, help people get their views across in a system that sometimes can walk over people just because it tends to group people rather than individualise people. Not intentional usually, but advocacy's got a really important role, and I think churches have got a, a, a similar role in that as well. Yeah. Just at the back, anything we haven't covered yet? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so in other words, something else ought to be... Is medication the first resort or is something else the first resort? And something else would be prayer, one-to-one, -one, counselling. Okay. Right, yeah, and there's, there's something behind that question, isn't there? It's easier to reach for the prescription pad... Um, and I think, you know, we all recognize that. But actually, maybe sometimes there's times when actually medication is your first line, sometimes praying is your first line, and sometimes talking is your first line, and trying to sort of work out, you know, when you ought to be doing what. And it, it is, is there an order? Yeah. Right, yes. And how can... Because, I mean, I'm preaching to the converted today in some regards, so how can you guys go back and talk to the church and get people more more sort of involved. Yep. Just something at the back over there and then we'll make a start bit of a start. Right, okay. 
Fine. Okay. So, I mean, I'm not particularly sort of covering sort of risk assessment and that kind of thing. Um, this is, you know, how do you know when to keep someone safe? I mean, I think, you know, for example, they were saying this morning in the self-harm seminar, you know, what's the difference between some, some superficial self-harm versus actually this person might be in danger of ending their life? I'm, I'm not going to cover that specifically because that is a huge a huge topic. Um, I think the only, I just answered that very briefly now. I think what you guys need to do is you need to act like members of the public. Okay, so, and, and like friends. So if someone says to you, I'm going to go and do something, okay, what would you do? Well, first of all, you try and stop them. You might even call an ambulance and you might even phone the police. And I, I, I think, you know, those might sound like extreme responses, but, you know, if you are genuinely concerned that someone is going to go and do something serious and is at serious risk of ending their life, you act like a member of the public. Now, I see people in my clinic every day who are suicidal and I let them walk out the door. That's different. A, because I know most of them are chronically suicidal, and B, because I've been trained in that. But I think what I'd say you guys is you respond to risk as you see it, and if the person has an issue with that, I think the response is, well, what did you expect me to do in that situation? You know, I'm, I'm a member of the public. I do some training for Christians Against Poverty debt counsellors, and that's what we say is you're a debt counsellor. You're a youth worker. You're not a counsellor. So, so you respond as you respond. If that involves, you know, ringing up the police and saying, I'm really worried about my friends, one of the core roles of the police is to safeguard the well-being of people. That's one of their core community roles. It's not just about arresting people. So if you're really worried about someone, phone someone, okay? Um, don't get too worried about the ins and outs of risk assessment. And just quickly while we're there, let me answer the question about counselling. You know, when should someone see a counsellor? When should see a therapist? The, the words are a mess, Okay, so, you know, what's a counsellor, what's a listener, et cetera, et cetera. Some of that's going to change a little bit next year when the government regulates the use of the word counsellor and you have to be accredited, probably to roundabout diploma, maybe even degree level in terms of hours of supervision and, and that kind of stuff. But the way I sort of break it down is into three levels, which is to say your first level is perhaps friends and family. By that, I mean good friends and good family who will act to help you understand your boundaries, bring you up in a nurturing environment, give you a special bit of time. But they're not trained as such, okay? And then perhaps the, the sort of level... And, and that is fine for the vast majority of stuff and should always continue, even if counselling or therapy is going on. Um, the next sort of level, and I, I don't mean to put these in a hierarchy, but I think it, it just makes it easiest to say it this way. The next level is, is counselling, taking a, a person-centred ap approach to it. And person-centred can be Christian, you know, ag aggressively humanist is, is not, but person-centred can be Christian, which is just giving a person, let's say, half an hour a week, an hour a week um, to listen. And I suppose the idea is that if you give the person that boundaried space, they will work stuff out and all you do is nudge, prompt, reflect, etc. And that is probably what we could describe as counselling, is that sort of listening with skill. And then the level above that, I suppose, is thinking about formal therapy. So that could be psychoanalysis, cognitive behavioural therapy, interpersonal therapy. There's a number of different therapies out there, but they all come from particular schools and models. And I suppose the basic idea is there's some stuff that responds to friends and family, other stuff needs some structure around the session, beginning times, end times. Some stuff needs some structure within the session. So, for example, cognitive behavioural therapy is a very structured approach, looking at vicious circles of behaviour, goal setting, changing them. There's a lot of structure comes. And I suppose the more structure is the more th therapy. Now, you might go to some psychoanalysis and 
they don't use couches that much anymore, but you know, it might seem very unstructured, but inside the psychotherapist's head is a very core understanding of a structure. I, it's not person-centered in that sense. Does that answer your sort of question there? Okay, so I think horses for courses. Some things, so for example, um, severe depression, obsessive compulsive disorder, severe social phobia, th these things are gonna need some structure to shift them. Whereas other things, you know, self-esteem, self-worth, good counselling, little bit of biblical reflection, maybe will will be a good start to those kinds of problems. And for most of us in the ups and downs of life, it's 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 friends and family. Okay. Let me give you just a little bit of, of history. Um, I'm trying to stand in front of my slides. There's something called the Great Divide, which happened, depending on your history between 500 and 1,000 years ago. And one way to understand it is if you look at how universities were set up. When universities were set up, it was all about um, arts. I went to an old and extremely ancient university, and still to this day, it's not possible to get a science degree from that university. I have a BA in neuroscience, which is weird, because it's not, it's a science degree, but I have an arts, I have a BA, but that's weird. What, what most universities did was they said that BAs are for the arts, and BSCs, you know, science degrees, are for the sciences. And the arts were things like divinity, theology, the sciences were things like medicine, biology, that sort of stuff. And a few universities obviously offer sort of BDs, bachelors of divinity. You know, your, your, your vicar or your minister might have a BD or an MTH or something. But that usually comes within the arts half of the university, not the science half of the university. And that's classically where theology has found its home, is in the arts side. Uh, Medicine has been on the other side. Psychology, where does psychology sit? I think that's really interesting because psychology sort of sits halfway between the two and sometimes there's um, counselling is in the art side and then experimental psychology is in the psychology side. So the brain has always been something that splits and divides or challenges that split and division. You know, I mean, I share an organ with a neurologist, but the neurologist can usually come up with a firm diagnosis, maybe see it under a microscope or at least understand the inheritance pattern. Whereas generally speaking, I deal with things that are, are not located in any particular part of the brain, but share an organ to that sense. And so, so that's part of the problem that, that we sort of come from. And there's a great film that came out a little while ago with, with Nigel Hawthorne and it called The Madness of King George. I don't, has anyone seen the, seen the film? Quite a few of you have. This was a really important time in history because what happened was that the king became ill with a mental illness. Now, it was something rare called acute porphyria, which is a genetic mental illness caused often by inbreeding often within the royal family in this particular case, and it, it's still carried to this day. Um, but what happened was that the Lords appointed the head of the Church of England was now mentally ill. And in the past, you know, physical illness, well, yes, we'll get you to see a, a doctor or a priest for that. And, um, you know, spiritual problems, we'll get you to go and see a priest. Sorry, so physical illness, you see a doctor, mental problems, you go and see a priest. But now the king, who was the head of the Church of England, had a mental problem. And you couldn't go and get him to see the priest because he was the priest's boss. So th th this caused some issues and some problems. And it was the time after that film when actually doctors began to take an interest in mental illness. Now, ironically, in the film, the person who actually got him better was a priest turned farmer, turned behavioral therapist. So they mixed the whole lot up in the film. But that was the key time when they said sickness is not sin. 
And I think still, sometimes in some parts of the church, there's this idea that mental illness is a sin because it's attended to by priests, because it comes in the arts, half of the university, etc. Whereas medicine has been sort of trying to get its teeth into it, if that makes sense, because there's a belief that it is an illness. Now, I think what happened then is that medicine has gone too far and has medicalized everything. So it's medicalized therapy. I mean, why am I giving you advice on what counselors do? I have no idea. I'm a doctor. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't. So I, I've medicalized this stratification of, of counselors. And it's very easy to do that. And, you know, that's why I think, you know, on the directors of Mind and Soul, we've got a vicar, we've got a psychiatrist, we've got a, a psychologist, we've got a social worker slash church minister you know we've got a whole bunch of different people there because we realize it's a fairly complex field and it needs a number of different approaches to deal with it and one thing to sort of begin thinking about i suppose is you know what is the root cause so there was there was this guy um whose name has completely slipped my mind let me remind myself carl rogers this is Carl Rogers, okay, one of the founders of humanism and the sort of aggressive forms of person-centered therapy. Um, this idea that mental illness is caused by social isolation. You know, if you isolate somebody, they'll become ill. And the answer to depression is to surround people with friends. Um, partly we know that's true, but we also know that going on a pilgrimage or going to be a hermit living in a cage doesn't necessarily mean that you get depressed. So <laughs> it's, it's not a one-to-one equation. Um, is it a spiritual root cause? Now, yes, all this happened as a result of the fall in the Garden of Eden. But so everything's spiritual. You know, the chair you're sitting on is spiritual. It didn't exist in the garden. Okay, it's an example of man's creativity. Um, but uh, just because there might be a spiritual problem behind it, does that mean that the first approach is always spiritual? Or is it a sort of biological, sort of neurological kind of cause? And then, of course, thinking a little bit about wh- what's the answer. And, um, you know, the, the secular guys will say, well, if there's a brain illness, let's give a pill. If there's an isolation problem, then let's get someone into a group. If, if the issue is about the person not being valued, let's value people. And if it's a spiritual problem, then let's pray. And I think we can all see how all of those things are important. Whereas what's happened is that people have tended to say sort of my way or the highway, it's only me, you know, this has got to be me. So, for example, let's pray about everything. Well, yes, it does say pray in the Bible, pray at all times in the Bible, doesn't it? But, you know, you take that verse, you take it out of context, it becomes a proof text to your pretext. And your pretext is that you've got to pray about everything. It's like, well, you didn't pray that that chair was going to hold you up when you sat down you you trusted in good engineering okay and likewise you know we're halfway through writing a book on worry and one of the things we're saying is that worry and anxiety are actually a miscalibrated normal emotion you know it's right to be frightened about a saber-toothed tiger it's right to be worried when your son goes overseas to fight in afghanistan it's when those things get decalibrated that there's a problem. So should we pray for the thing to be healed and get rid of that sickness of anxiety? Well, is it a sickness of anxiety or is it actually a miscalibrated anxiety which needs retraining and recalibrating? So that's how a psychologist would approach some of these things. So I'm just wondering, people who sort of, I'm going to sort of just take some things back to the audience. Any sort of thoughts, ideas about that? We didn't get very much from the back. Any, anyone want to sort of chip in on that or ask another question on the back of that at all? Or here at all? Yep. Yeah. 
Okay. And of course, this gets really interesting, as you say, when, you know, religious delusions in, in schizophrenia, for example, you know, and I think, you know, people sort of say, oh, I'm Jesus, come again. And, you know, the age old thing often gets trotted out by people who are sort of quite atheist in, in their sort of background. Oh, there's another example of how religion has screwed up someone's life, for example. You know, they now think they're Jesus. And if they weren't religious, then they wouldn't have these delusions. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not quite sure what their thinking is at that point, because, of course, you know, what we know is that when people become psychotically unwell, they just absorb whatever's going on in their life at the time. So if someone is entirely into World of Warcraft or something like that, and they're spending, you know, too much time on the computer playing that, if they become psychotic, chances are they're going to become a guild leader. Okay, it, it, it sort of goes like that. Whereas if you are in the depths of Catholic Spain, you may well think you're the Virgin Mary, for example. So people tend to incorporate what's going on about them. So, you know, for example, when evangelical Christians can become very unwell, they could often think they've committed the unforgivable sin or something like that. Or they could have a religious belief that they are the Messiah come again and this is the end of the world and they've got a special mission. And I, th I think what I would say is that they're just laying hold of what's in their world. And if, if they weren't Christians and were into sci-fi. Instead, they probably think they were Zog from the planet Mars coming to overtake the human race. And you wouldn't say, oh, there's another example of how aliens have ruined the world again. So, so I think, you know, we need to sort of um, say, well, actually, this is just something that, that, that people are laying hold of. Does, does that answer your question? And I think, I think there is space for a little bit of skill in this, because I think sometimes, and this relates to sort of how the churches get involved, is, um, let's supposing, I mean, I'm a psychiatrist who's a, who's a Christian, but what if you're a psychiatrist who's not a Christian? And hopefully there's not too many aggressively atheist psychiatrists out there, but there'll be a fair number who will say, I don't have a faith, and there'll be a fair number who say, I don't know. What do they do when they've got someone sitting in front of them who says, I've committed the unforgivable sin? Now, is that a delusion? Is that cultural? Is that part of their depression? What's going on? And that is a huge minefield. And actually, that's an amazing opportunity for churches to get involved. And um, one of the things I think is really important is that's probably the wrong time to sort of reach for the chaplain because there's not that many chaplains in the NHS. You know, some NHS, NHS trusts have got rid of them completely. So to be able to get a chaplain's opinion on every single spiritual question that's going to come up before a psychiatrist, psychologist, social worker, etc., is not going to happen. They just are not the resources for that. And also the Equality Act, which was on the statutes last April, is becoming enacted law this April. So as we speak, the Equality Act is being implemented. The Equality Act requires NHS trusts to proactively seek everyone using their services, whether or not they've got spiritual aspects to their illness that need to be dealt with and addressed. And in the same way that services used to sort of have to be sort of age sensitive, you know, reflect the ethnic mix of the population where they live, etc., we're moving away from that sort of let's look at the ethnic mix of Camberwell, for example, and make sure our staff reflect that. What we're doing is we're moving away from that sort of statistical approach to equality and diversity and very much becoming person-centered. So we say to the person in front of you, do you think there's anything particular about you which we need to pay special attention to when we're delivering your mental health care? And it may be, well, yes, you know, for example, I'm a, I'm a woman and I would like to see a woman could be something as, 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 as obvious as that. It, it could be a spiritual aspect to, um, to people's care. And they may say, well, actually, I don't know, can you say, I'd like to see a Christian? Or I don't know whether you can do that. I don't think there's enough Christians, but you can definitely say, 
I would like that particular aspect of my problems to be paid special attention to because some of them belong to my core faith and I don't want people to say that's part of my illness or that's just a maintaining factor. Um, so I think the new equality legislation is actually really exciting as to how we approach and address that qualification. And I might come back to our friend from advocacy on that. Let, let me give you this. I think you've got some good points to make. Um, yeah, I wanted to make a point because I'm, I'm relatively new in the Christian faith since October. And um, I've worked in advocacy for 12 years, so that's a bit more um, of sort of longer experience. But in my experience, I've looked at research where, um, so I, forgive me on the figures, but it's something like uh, the research that I looked at was 70% of people in this country have a belief in God of some sort. Uh, and in opposition to that, about... 70% of people who work in mental health services don't believe in God. And it's one of the things that I've come across in terms of the advocacy role, because I have come across people who have had religious delusions or whatever, but even people that aren't, their illness isn't around you know, that, that area, still seem to have that spiritual need. And, and I, from my point of view, I, I, I get quite worried that that's a big part. I, I mean, I take your point that maybe you know, people have relaxed a little bit around it or, or are more open-minded than they used to be. But my experience is that people are actually quite frightened of the spiritual element. So. And as you say, I think a lot of that frightenedness is ignorance, in that if that's not their tradition. I mean, I am not an expert on Islam, for example. So when I worked in City Centre Bradford for a year, I had to work out what the basic tenets of Islam were, you know, more so than perhaps, you know, I might just do from reading the old book. I also had to work out how the particular type of um, rural Pakistani black magic about jinns and taweses and, and that kind of thing worked in city centre Bradford that wasn't core Islam. So, so I had to become culturally aware. And I think in city centre Bradford, it's very obvious that has to happen. Whereas, as you say, most people are not necessarily making those kinds of steps. So, um, you know, I think there's a number of different ways you can approach that. One thing I do is a very small amount of second opinion work for people who live within the Lothian area around Edinburgh. And it's usually people who are seeing colleagues of mine already or the GP wants to refer them to a psychiatrist but the person basically refuses to see a psychiatrist or a psychologist because they're worried that their faith is going to be poo-pooed or maybe they have a delusion. You know, and I mean, these are people who are ill. Um, you know, and what I sometimes do is see them once and try to help work out what's their faith, what's their illness, etc. But I'm a very scarce resource. You know, I, I cannot do that for the whole of the Lothian, the whole of that alone the whole of the UK. So a really key thing has got to be working with the people. And also, you know, I said I said earlier, I think, um, you know, if I'm sitting in my, my clinic and someone comes in, the best thing in the world for me is if they bring a family member with them or if they bring a, a supporter with them, which could be from the church. And Occasionally it's a bit complicated and I have to make sure I see the person by themselves at some point during the assessment. But actually I'd far rather see them with somebody than by themselves. And even if you know, you've got people who you're supporting who are going to see a counsellor, obviously you're not going to go along to every single counselling session. But maybe if this is what the person wants, to occasionally talk to the counsellor and say to the counsellor, can I help put into practice some of the things that you are discussing and to help be a coach in the same way that you know a spouse might help reinforce what a therapist is saying. So, so I think what I would say is go along to appointments by and large. And certainly in England and Wales, there's something called the care program approach, which is a structure used for people who are seeing secondary care mental health services, so psychiatrists, psychologists, that kind of stuff. And that actively encourages the involvement of, yes, advocacy, but also friends, relatives, carers in the 
annual or six monthly care planning meetings. And I see absolutely no reason why one of the people shouldn't be the youth worker from the local church. And your job is not there to be a mental health expert, it's to be a supporter, to help advocate the person's feelings. So actually there's a huge need for the church to get involved. And I think even people who don't share your faith should be able to understand that for this person to have people around them is a good idea, for them to be going somewhere once a week is a good idea, for them to be externalizing and making their problems existential in some way is probably a good idea you know, rather than all of the burden falling to them. And also, if they are getting a message from the pulpit every Sunday, it's going to work at least as strongly as the message they're getting from the psychologist each week. So we probably ought to try and make sure that these two things are are joined up to a certain extent. So I think the care program approach is a good example as to how churches can get more involved in things. Okay. I'm happy just to keep taking questions or we can go through stuff. So I've got a burning question. Yep. Okay, yeah, yeah, so ADHD, hyperactivity, yeah. I mean, we've been talking a fair bit about what you might call the sort of neurosis end of things, depressions, anxieties, all of those things are on a huge spectrum. And there's a few sort of words out there like schizophrenia, bipolar, ADHD, that kind of stuff. Um, I haven't really got time to sort of go through them all in detail, but just to sort of direct you towards a couple of resources. The Royal College of Psychiatrists and the National Mental Health Charity Mind, both of them have got very good websites um, that will contain lists of patient information. So if you want to know what is ADHD, for example, it will tell you a little bit about it. It'll also tell you a little bit about the context, like, for example, it seems to be diagnosed more on the far side of the Atlantic than here, etc., etc. You know, and um, both of those, if you look on the Mind and Soul website, there's a section called Directory, and then there's a list of sort of secular organisations, which are effectively sort of national websites that you can go and get that kind of fairly basic information. And most of it is good, basic information as to what those diseases are. Yes, at the back. Yes. There, there are many sort of specialist charities. So Rethink used to be called the National Schizophrenia Fellowship, and it's specifically sort of working around psychosis. There's something called um, hearing voices, for example. I know that between 1% and 2% of the UK people hear voices. That probably means there's a couple of people in this room who hear voices. I'm not saying that the people who are psychotic who've got schizophrenia, but just hear voices. And how do we understand that as Christians? You know, my understanding is that that is a normal variation in the same way that some people are slightly more ordered and tidy in their bedrooms than other people. You know, there's a spectrum there, and there's a spectrum of voice hearing. For some people, it's just their thoughts out loud. Other people actually hear voices. And I'm not talking about people who are ill. I'm talking about people who function in every other area of their life, but hear voices. So I think there's lots of good resources out there. Yeah. Um, I work in care and support and I found that like, people tend to get over-diagnosed a lot. So they're like, oh, I just felt down, or you're mentally depressed, and you just put these labels on it, and then it gives you the energy to just keep going down the route. Right, yeah. Definitely. So it's a question about people being over-diagnosed with things. I think that if I take you back to the history lesson, Okay, what we had before the madness of King George was physical illness was um, 
illness. It was understandable. It was a result of the fall. God could heal you. And, but yet mod- medicine was advancing, and it was generally speaking understood that there were doctors and barber surgeons and that sort of thing who would help you with that. However, all mental illness was seen as a spiritual and sinful problem. W- one of the big advantages of medicalization has been to destigmatize mental illness. This is partly what we're sort of doing today, which is to say this is real, this is common, it's out there, help is at hand, medication is helpful sometimes, psychology is helpful sometimes, et cetera, et cetera. So, so from that point of view, you know, medicalizing and raising awareness is a good idea when your starting point is the 1500s and everything is seen as, as sin. Okay. The problem comes when that comes too far and we go around medicalizing everything. And or psychologicalizing everything. You know, it's not his fault he was a rapist because his father abused him. You know, that, that's the extreme end of the spectrum, I think. You know, what we're saying is where behavior has become psychologically formulated. And yes, you know, if you're a psychologist, you will talk about things like cycles of abuse and, you know, the low self-esteem and how the self-esteem can be boosted in a rather sick way by a sexual assault. You know, th- these cycles of assault do operate, and it is one of the ways in which we try to help people who've been convicted of sex crimes, for example. However, I think this is where there's a really important role for the church to keep saying that might help us understand how that person got there, but that doesn't necessarily excuse the behavior. So, for example, society still demands a prison term for that offense. Um, there's a guy called Herbert Maurer who was president of the American Psychological Association and he got into a whole bunch of trouble about 25 years ago because basically he was saying what I just said he said psychologists had got themselves to a point where everything was relativist everything was just oh well you can see why that person behaved like that because they behave like this and there's genes for anger and all this kind of stuff I mean yes there's a couple of genes that are loosely associated with more aggressive temperaments but that doesn't make anger a genetic condition, you know. And so he got, he got into a whole bunch of trouble for sort of saying, we've lost the idea of sin and called everything sickness. And as a result of this, he was struck off his professorship at Harvard. He lost his chair of the American Psychological Association. And about 10 years later, he could, took his own life because he became so depressed because he was completely vilified by his compatriots for saying, hey, psychologists, there's a moral component to this. And I think that's where we've got to try and find this tension between saying... Let's make a diagnosis if that's helpful. If it results in a solution, let's make it. So, for example, I think ADHD is a good example of that because a lot of, I think, what's diagnosed sometimes on the far side of the the, um, Atlantic and also quite a lot of classroom behavior in this country is bad behavior. But I also know that when you actually see a child with ADHD, if you make a diagnosis and give that child stimulant medication, they will get GCSEs. Whereas before they didn't. And I think, you know, that is the skill of a good psychiatrist is to sort of say, this is ADHD, that's conduct disorder. And to make a distinction between those two. And that requires a combination of boundaries, discipline, and parenting interventions. And this is ADHD, which, yes, requires help with behavior and parenting, as that's often part of it, but actually... This is because a bit of the brain is not working and it needs a diagnosis and it needs some medication. Because if there's medication that'll get the person some GCSEs in their life... That's great. And I see in my work quite a lot of people whose kids have been diagnosed with ADHD and the child and family team are trying to do work (laughs) with these children and the parents are a disaster. And the parents come and see me and we make a confident diagnosis. We get them on a small amount of ADHD medication and they can parent. 
And that, I think, is brilliant when that happens. You know, that's medication used in the right way. Another example might be someone who has schizophrenia. And, I mean, schizophrenia is a very complex, a very broad-ranging condition, a huge spectrum of severity. But for a lot of people with schizophrenia, a small amount of medication is tremendously beneficial. And the modern medications will help to control some of the overactivity in the brain in terms of the delusions and hallucinations, but not knock the person out, not sedate them. And it means that marriages stay together, people stay in work, etc. Whereas if I was to go around doling out ADHD medication to every single behaviour we'd have problems. If I was to go around doling antipsychotics out to every single person who hears voices, we'd have a problem. And within that, we still have to work within a moral framework. So, for example, what happens if somebody is mad, for want of a better term, you know, completely insane, doesn't know what's going on, and as a result of their madness, kills someone? Should they go to prison or should they go to hospital? And I think that's a very interesting dilemma because... Society demands a payment for murder, okay? But this person is ill and is a doctor, not a police warden. So sometimes what can happen is that the person might go to a special hospital, such as Broadmoor or Rampton, for a period of time during which their illness is treated, but they then go to a prison to serve the remaining term. But the term might not be life for murder. It might be... People would plea, for example, in insanity in courts, and the, the, the conviction is, is for manslaughter instead. And I don't know if you know, but manslaughter can have a range of sentences handed out. It's not always life. It might be 20 years, 10 years, 5 years. So, so there are some people within the forensic mental health services who have what's, what used to be called hybrid orders, which is hospital for a time and then prison. And I think that's a good example of how sort of morality and medicine have worked together within forensic mental health services. And, you know, to add the Christian dimension to that, it would be, well, where does that person stand before God? And obviously God is not going to find them guilty in the same way, perhaps, that there might be a person who committed murder who wasn't psychotic. But I would suspect there's an extent to which that person still has to repent before God, even if they were very ill when they committed that crime because they, they have had a consequence on that person who's been, the family that's been left behind, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think, you know, a lot of these things, we need to keep it multidimensional, spiritual, psychological, criminal, medical, et cetera, et cetera. Okay? Yep. Okay. So there's a question about sort of d demon possession and, and things like that. And I think, um, I mean, this is a, a huge, huge, huge topic. Um, I think there's, there's two or three things to say. The first thing is that when Jesus did exorcisms, the person wasn't stigmatized or vilified. It just happened. And after that, they were welcomed in full arms into the fellowship. And that's a really important thing. So I think sometimes, particularly in the West, stuff around exorcisms, et cetera, et cetera, can often leave the person in a worse place. And I think particularly when the person doing the exorcism has got a bee in their bonnet and this thing must come out today and actually embarrasses the pants off a person. You know, I think one of the sort of best models um, I like is ju just a very simple sort of model, which is, you know, the power in this... I'll come on to what I think about exorcisms in a second, but let's supposing for a moment you're going to do an exorcism. The power is in Jesus' name. And if it doesn't come out when you're after Jesus' name, just wait, come back tomorrow, you know, and just say, can I just pray a prayer of blessing instead? You know, I think getting into these sort of 
hour, two hour, three hour long exorcisms and then sort of looking, oh, he's the person who was exercised last week. You know, that's not the way it happened in the New Testament. It was very matter of fact. It was the power of Jesus and that's all there was to it. So I think if we're going to go down that kind of route, we have to do it in a, in a very person empowering kind of way. I think actually that's what we see. There are other cultures in the world who obviously use exorcism normally you know, as, as part of their sort of normal day-to-day life. I've got friends who've worked as missionaries in Africa, and one of the things they tell me is that this is kind of normal day-to-day kind of stuff. And, you know, you'll ex- exercise a new house before you move into it, etc. And I think that's, again, you know, when it's normative in a culture, it's probably safer to use it. Because I think in this country, because it's so abnormal, it gets used as a last resort with loads of pressure and strings attached to it, etc., etc. So I think what I would sort of say is, Let's perhaps just have more prayers for healing, ministries of deliverance. I think the word exorcism is kind of scary. But let, let, let's have, you know, deliverance ministry. Let's, let's ask, you know, do you think this is evil or is this just a problem? If it's evil, we'll just pray. I mean, I'm, you know, I'll not be shy to go on record and say I'm a charismatic Christian. So I, I do believe in the existence of evil, the personal existence of evil. I do believe in the idea of, of, of demons, their influence, and in some cases, possession. But let's do our healing, let's do our work in, in a person-empowering kind of way rather than, you know, at special meetings. You know, we almost kind of need to sort of embed it in exactly the same way that hopefully counselling, Christian counselling is becoming more sort of embedded. You know, many churches now have a counsellor, which is great. But if churches have a counsellor, we need to make sure that that counsellor is embedded in the mainstream pastoral care team, not in a room over there seeing a few people who everyone knows they're seeing the counsellor. You know, it, it, it's, it's got to be sort of, sort of mainstream. And I think th- the other thing to say is I haven't seen that much demon possession. I've seen lots and lots and lots of psychotic people. And only once or twice in my career have I ever got the impression that I'm dealing with a demon. And I often pray inside my own head when I'm working, Lord, help me understand what is going on here. Help me discern the spirits. not... You know, I don't necessarily sort of make a big deal of it. It's one of the things, Lord help, Lord, help me when I see this patient who I'm going to meet for the first time today. Show me what they need. Um, and I've only once or twice met a demon. And if you read through the gospel accounts of demonic activity, the vast majority of it is nothing to do with mental illness. It's to do with people who either have a physical infirmity or are the Jewish leaders at the time. You know, so this idea that, you know, demonic activity equals schizophrenia... I think is something that has sort of grown up. Um, there's only one or two situations where, um, you know, we do meet someone who seems to have some mental health symptoms and is demon-possessed. And a good example is Legion, I think, in, in, in John 5 or John 6. And again, that's a good example of the exorcism being relatively matter-of-fact. And actually, he became an awesome evangelist and he was given a ministry by Jesus and you know, he couldn't stay in the area because people knew too much. But, you know, he was treated as a human after that, not as the ex-nutter who lived in the graveyard, etc. Um, and the other thing is that when Jesus went around doing these kinds of sort of exorcisms and healings, if you read the Bible text, it says things like, and he went and he cast out spirits and healed the sick and gave the blind sight, etc. You know, which almost seems to suggest that these three things are kind of, you know, demon possession is not the same as illness, Okay, and I think sometimes as Christians, if we're putting everything in the sort of spiritual thing, any, any illness is spiritual, therefore needs to be prayed about. Well, no, maybe demon possession is spiritual and physical illnesses just get healed. You know, there's, let, let's not tie those two things together. Okay.
Yeah, question just there. And of course, you know, some of the mental health problems that you've seen in your work with the homeless, probably those people needed prayer. <laughs> and they definitely probably needed the supporting community and environment of a church. But was that for their homelessness or for their mental illness or whatever? And I think what we have to do is we have to sort of, rather than sort of go with the problem, let's think about what it takes to be a healthy human being. And healthy humans need, first of all, a house. If someone's homeless, what they need first and foremost is a house and some money and some food and that kind of thing. What they also need, and Christians believe that everyone needs a relationship with God. So we would say, well, actually, those people need a relationship with God. It doesn't necessarily mean that their relationship with God will get rid of their mental health problems. So, for example, history is full of people like Martin Luther almost certainly had very severe OCD. Amy Carmichael, who was the great missionary to India, had very severe depression. Martin Lloyd-Jones had severe depression. Um, Ali Martin was saying at the beginning she'd had an episode of depression. Jeff Lucas has been open about his diagnosis of depression. I've had some email correspondence with a well-known London worship leader who I won't mention because you'll know their name. And they have said that every single time they get up on stage, they are doing a personal battle with depression and their own value about their self-worth. And this is someone who's written songs. So just because you've got an amazing relationship with God doesn't mean that you won't have mental health problems. That's the first thing to say. But also, we believe that God heals. We believe that God heals. And, you know, we believe that that can happen today and that can happen now. And it can. And it. And I sometimes think about this. I don't know if you've heard this before, but when you read through the New Testament, there's three different tenses of salvation. So we say people have been saved from the penalty of sin by what Jesus did on the cross. He paid the price for our sins. We say people are being saved from the presence of sin. Every time you say, Satan, flee from me, he flees from you. Every single time you overcome temptation, you become stronger. So we are being saved from the presence of, from the, from the power, presence of power of sin, sorry, through the Holy Spirit, through our own discipleship. We will be saved from the presence of sin because there will be a place where Satan is bound and chained and destroyed and he won't have an influence anymore. And I sort of, it's really interesting, if you look at the Greek word for salvation, it's actually the same as the Greek word for healing. So if we think about three tenses of healing, people often, you know, people who are into sort of healing ministries often trot out Isaiah 53, you know, by his stripes we are healed, therefore we need to pray the blood of Jesus over this person and they must be healed now. But if you think about the three tenses of healing, what we can say is we have been given the possibility to be healed by what Jesus Christ did on the cross. That is something which is in theory available to everybody okay we are being healed 
and people are continually healed day by day, gradually. You know, sometimes healing is, you know, yeah, let's heal this person from counseling, some from cancer. You know, sometimes it's layers of an onion skin. Onion skin. Every few years we have to go through sort of rehealing, re-examination of our character, and that character flaw that you thought you got sorted comes to the head again. You know, we're constantly needing to be healed through God's grace from the various issues and things we have in our life. And we will be healthy in heaven. And, and the extent to which those sort of spill over from the future into the present vary. And it varies partly according to the denomination that you're in and the cultural background that you're in. And like I say, some cultures and denominations make more of this, but the important thing is to keep the person's dignity in the middle of the healing, in the middle of it. I was reading, for example, about something that the Salvation Army called the Mercy Seat. And they have a tradition where in each Salvation Army meeting, people are invited at the end to go forward for prayer at the mercy seat. Now, this is to be encouraged if lots of the people in the meeting are going forward for prayer at the mercy seat. And I think that's exciting and it's part of their culture. Whereas what slightly worries me is where there's churches that have, let's say, an altar call or a, a call for healing at the end of the service. And each week it's one poor soul who goes forward, and they go forward every week, they end up snotting tears everywhere, counselling, actually encourages the behaviour, makes it worse, and every single person in the church sees that person going forward for healing on that particular occasion. And I think, you know, that to me would be an example of a healing ministry done, done badly. If that person needs regular soaking prayer, then perhaps it's best in that happens in an environment that's less stigmatising. Whereas if it's in your culture to have a mercy seat, or it's in your culture to pray for stuff, let's do it. Um... But it, it, it's, you know, it's le- le- the extent to which that healing will happen. And the other thing, of course, that's big in here is God's sovereignty. In that, you know, God sometimes heals, sometimes doesn't heal. Sometimes saves, doesn't save. Sometimes heals in a day, sometimes heals in a thousand years. That is the complexity of, of the faith and the, and the God we have. So I think healing has to happen in that context. You know, has been, is being, will be the sovereignty of God, the exorcism of healing gifts in the church, and the faith of the person, those three are in a dynamic. There's lots of these dynamics that interplay around healing. Okay. Yeah, at the back. Can a Muslim psychologist help a Christian who is depressed? Yes. Yes. Now, I'm going to say a yes to that. And I know, for example, as a Christian psychiatrist, who used to help Muslims who were depressed when I was in Bradford. Um, So... I mean, I mean, when I was in Bradford, I, I used to say to people, do you go to mosque? No, I haven't been for a few weeks. Well, why don't you try going? Okay, and I, I said that, and I would encourage them in their daily prayers. And I do that at a number of different levels. First of all, they're getting out of their bed, okay, at a purely behavioral kind of thing. Secondly, they are entering into an aspect of faith and externalizing in, in, of their illness. They're sort of saying there's bigger things at play than just, just me and the things I think I've done wrong. There's a, a God with a small G out there in the universe, etc. And thirdly, because I believe that God can work through that. So I had to make a decision as a Christian psychiatrist working in Muslim Bradford as to the fact that I wasn't going to try and evangelize that person on the spot. I was just going to encourage them. And I think what you do is you find ways of doing that. So, for example, I would often say for people during Ramadan, can I pray for you on the night of power? And if anyone studied Ramadan, you'll know that the night of power is one of the, the nights in Ramadan where Muslims pray for a vision of Jesus. I think that's great. Can I pray for a vision of Jesus for you? Yeah, go for it. Um, so so there's, there's ways that you can work. And they say, yes, 
They want it. It's kind of like a Christmas Eve when the kids stay up to midnight and think they'll meet Santa. You know, Muslim kids try to stay up until midnight on the night of power in order to get a vision of Jesus. I, I think this is exciting. And I think, you know, if you're working in an area where you're working with people with lots of different faiths, you need to find out what's going on in their faith because there's probably ways that you can, with honesty and integrity, work in an interfaith manner. Now, today is not an interfaith conference. Today is a, is a Christian conference. But I'm also happy to work in an interfaith manner. I, I wouldn't do worship or healing or church in an interfaith manner, but I'm happy to work in an interfaith manner because I trust in the sovereignty of God. The other question, the other way, is if you're a Christian and the only psychologist available to you is, let's say, a Muslim or a um, atheist, agnostic, etc., I think, this is my personal view, I think as long as they're not aggressively atheist, it doesn't matter and it might even help. And one of the reasons for that is if you talk to Christian counselors, they sometimes really struggle with the fact that people slip into Christian shorthand. Or they talk about interesting Christian red herrings rather than real issues. And if you're seeing a Muslim psychologist or a Buddhist psychologist, you're really going to have to explain exactly why your faith is or isn't related to the maintaining cycles of your depression. And you're really going to have to think stuff through. And actually, see, sometimes seeing somebody of the same faith can be a problem. If I can recommend two resources on this, one is a book by a friend of mine, David Enoch, who's a Christian psychiatrist, and he's written a book called I Want to See a Christian Psychiatrist! Exclamation mark. And his view is that you have to see a Christian psychiatrist because they can not only give you pills, they can also counsel you, they can also pray for you. And I suppose that's true from, from that point of view. I'm, I'm not quite sure what the resources implications of that are, but I, you know, it, it's an interesting book. It's well written. The other book is... A PhD thesis by a lady called Tara Gormley, G-O-R-M-L-E-Y, which is on the Mind and Soul website. And she basically did her PhD research looking at this whole issue of can Christians see people from other faiths. And that was basically her conclusion, is that actually quite often it's really helpful because you actually get to the roots of the problem rather than lapsing into Christian shorthand and finishing the session with a, a can I pray for you. And I'm not saying, of course, that Christian counselors want to do that, but that's one of the things they constantly have to battle against. And actually working cross-faith can help in that area. Yep. Yep. Is CBT unbiblical? Um, I hope not. Um, <laughs> partly because I have a diploma, postgraduate diploma in CBT. So, uh, no, I don't think it's unbiblical. I think, um, I suppose the question is, you know, I mean, people sort of trot out, you know, Philippians, take every thought captive and <laughs> submit it to Christ. And I think all CBT is, is helping someone with that process because probably they've been trying to take their thought captives and submit it to Christ, or they've been trying to renew their mind, as Romans 12 says. The first thing to say about both those passages, they need a jolly good go away and read them slowly before they're immediately attributed to mental illness. And they are frequently attributed to mental illness. I don't think either of them are about mental illness or about depressive thoughts or suicidal thoughts or anything like that. Um, but there is a sense in that as Christians, we want to align our thoughts with the thoughts of Christ. We want to align our views with the views of the Bible. The problem is if you try and do that, and particularly if you're struggling with a mental health problem, you may well end up feeling more guilty. And my guess is that that is not God's wish in this situation. So a good CBT therapist or a good counsellor will merely be the person who helps you do that. So for example, if... Um, Supposing this is Sunday and this is church and I'm preaching a sermon, 
about a hundred of you here. So if I preach a sermon, I don't know, John 3.16, something like that, okay, a nice classic text. Five of you are going to go and start a church. <laughs> you're going to be so up for it that, oomph, there you go, you're going to go and start a church just on the basis of one message. Probably about half to three quarters of you are going to get it, but you're going to need maybe to talk it through in small group, um, one-to-one Bible study, etc. You know, the normal processes of church, you know, roast sermon for Sunday lunch, etc. You you're not going to go and start a church immediately, but you, you will get it off your own back or with the normal structures of church. There's going to be some people who actually are not Christian at all, and for them that verse is their judgment. And the same truth can cause some people to plant a church. I mean, that was the verse says, you know, shall not perish. Well, there's got to be some who are going to perish, you know. So for some, that verse is their judgment. But there's a group in between those who get it with normal structures and those who are never going to get it and who Jesus is going to have words with who need a bit of help to get the biblical truths. And I think that's where good counseling, good therapy, etc., come in. So I think that's what I'd say just generally about therapy. Is it about changing your mind? No, it's about helping you get where you want your mind to go anyway. Now, if you're working, let's say, with someone who's not um, a Christian, um, you know, actually, I would say more often than not, faith is helpful. So a good, a good CBT therapist should be drawing on your resources of being part of a social community, going to church every week, um, praying, you know, being used to examining your cognitions and what's going on in your head. These are important things that make Christians quite psychologically minded and good candidates for CBT. Um, but what the therapist shouldn't be doing is they shouldn't be challenging core aspects of your faith. A, because they're not normally related to the illness at hand, so they shouldn't be touching them anyway, naughty, naughty. Th- this, they're meant to be dealing with the depression. But also they shouldn't be challenging them because they'll be breaching the Equality Act if they do. So, so I guess the short answer is it's perfectly possible to do good CBT in an empowering way to help a person. And the person can say, well, actually, I would like to believe that God loves me more. That's my goal for therapy. I know it up here. I want to know it down here. Can you help me with that? So, so I think actually, you know, a good. I, I don't see any reason why a secular therapist should struggle with that goal. Now, actually, I can think of lots of reasons why they might struggle with it, but legally, there is no reason why they should struggle with that goal. Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. So this is trauma work, and do we do the old sort of style, or where do things like EMDR fit in? This is eye movement desensitization. I've forgotten what the R stands for. Yeah, I mean, there's a number of sort of processes. Another thing is emotional freedom therapy, which is called acupuncture without needles, where you tap on sort of pressure points effectively in the body. Are some of these things appropriate to Christians, or are they shorthand, etc.? I'm going to be slightly controversial on this and say... I think they work because they work. And, um, for example, meditation, mindfulness, often associated with being Eastern. Okay, uh, But actually, the Christian church has got a long tradition of fasting, contemplation, the Celtic tradition, etc. Not a million miles away from mindfulness. Now, yes, if you go in there and do mindfulness with a Buddhist 
worldview, then yes, that's not Christian. But actually, the sort of ideas in mindfulness about non-judgmental and compassion and some of those things, those are very, very core to Celtic Christianity, for example. So, so I think there are some sort of new things that are coming onto the market, and perhaps mindfulness-based CBT for depression is a good example. And people will often say, oh, this is a technique that has its roots in Buddhism. And I keep stamping my feet and saying, and Christianity, and Islam and other religions, okay? The oldest psychiatric hospital in the world is from the ninth century in Baghdad, okay? So, um, you know, the other faiths have got a tradition on this, and I suppose my point of view is that it works because it works, and it's something which has been incorporated into a number of different faith traditions. So from that point of view, is sticking a needle in someone... I have no idea how acupuncture works. I have no idea how EMDR, it's like, you know, you watch this light going backwards and forwards. It's like watching Wimbledon. I have no idea how that helps somebody process trauma. What I don't automatically do is adopt the mindset that comes with it. So, and say, oh, acupuncture is Eastern. No, it's not. Acupuncture is sticking needles in. We haven't got a clue how it works. The Eastern people think it's to do with meridians and ley lines. Okay, I, I have no idea. Maybe acupuncture is okay for Christians. I think... I, I probably think it is. That's my view. Slightly controversial. Not all Christians would hold that view. Likewise, EMDR. I have no idea how this works. But just because I have no idea how it works, I don't explicitly say it's not Christian. Actually, I have no idea how that chair is holding anyone in this room up. Because we don't actually understand molecular adhesion. Is it the weak, the near gravitational force, the small gravitational force? You know. There's, there's these four fundamental forces in the universe and time travel and the speed of light and Stephen Hawking. People don't understand quantum physics and that means that none of your chairs should work. Okay? doesn't mean you don't sit on them. So I don't understand EMDR. I think it works. It's got a good evidence base behind it and providing it doesn't become packaged with an alternative worldview, I'm okay with it. Yeah, I mean, this is the question with sort of resources and the current financial climate and the um, need to streamline slash sausage machine people um, versus, um, you know, third sector, independent organisations, setting up groups, etc., that kind of thing. Or people off their own back, blogging. I mean, I, mine all started with me blogging about it, and I had a couple of hundred readers and... I was amazed people wanted to read what I had to say. So, you know, I think a lot can, can start like that. The stuff is going to become more streamlined. I mean, one of the things, for example, I was going to say as a psychiatrist is that actually seeing people one-to-one, -one, I only do for one morning and one afternoon a week. Almost all of the rest of my time is seeing people jointly with their CPN, their social worker, or being involved in meetings without them there, or paperwork, administration, teaching, education... There's a whole bunch of stuff I do which is not seeing people one-to-one. -one. So the idea you might go to see a mental health service and get to see the psychiatrist, particularly the consultant psychiatrist, probably isn't going to happen. I work by and large with the two groups of people who I think I can help most, which is people with psychotic illnesses, in particular schizophrenia, and I also get people who are very suicidal and need to come into hospital. So I work almost entirely with those two groups. I hardly see anybody with what you might call standard 
depression or anxiety or with less severe forms of risk or people who occasionally I will see people who you know there's a question mark has this person got bipolar disorder or is it just mood swings or this person's hearing voices is it schizophrenia is it not so I will do some assessment work but in terms of my ongoing work Generally speaking, I work with people who are very psychotic or suicidal, and, and that's kind of what I do. So chances are, if you are in contact with your local community health team, you probably won't see the psychiatrist. You'll probably be seeing someone in the primary care team or in secondary care. It could be a CPN or it could be a psychologist or it could be a graduate mental health worker, etc. Um, one of the things that um, one of the articles on the Minosol website is just a, a whole list of the different titles and professions and things like that. It's not on our site, it's actually hosted on, on a different site, but we've linked to it. And it's like, well, what does a psychiatric social worker do? What does a CBT therapist do? What does um, a community psychiatric nurse do? And obviously, that changes ever so slightly in each different part of the country, but on average, they will be the same. So you'll be able to get some kind of idea. As to whether other groups will sort of rise up and take the place, I hope so. And um, I think there's a number of reasons for that. First of all, as I was saying at the beginning, the medicalization agenda has probably gone too far and it needs to swing back and society needs as a whole to absorb a lot of emotional distress as normal rather than the, oh, I need to go and see my shrink to get this fixed or, oh, I need a pill for this. We need to understand the ups and downs of life a bit more. We need to read more of, in church, we need to read more of David's times in the wilderness. We need to read more of the pain in the offering. We need to read more of persecution in church history. We, we need to deal with actually what is a very important side of church life rather than say to be a Christian equals to be happy, smiley, etc., etc. So, so there's, there's a few things there. So I hope society will normalise a lot of mental health problems like that and groups will start up. Obviously, funding is quite strapped at the moment because a lot of you know, funding that used to come from government sources is being pulled back, etc., etc. But actually, churches are uniquely placed because churches are essentially large voluntary organisations. So I would say get out there, open a drop-in cafe, um, employ a counsellor on staff, even if it's only one or two days a week. Let's, let's start taking some of that burden back within the church because the church is very equipped to deal with it, not just because we've got Jesus, but actually because we've got you know, communities, we've got buildings, we've got structures, we've got a tolerance of unhappiness that we should have a tolerance of unhappiness. Okay. I'm aware that we have come to the end of our hour, so I better wrap it up there, but I'm quite happy to chat to people at the front afterwards. Thank you very much. You've been a great audience.